But let's turn our attention to God's Word, uh, this great story from Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to read, I'm going to pray, and then we will preach. This is God's Word. I'm going to begin. It's in your bulletin. I always encourage you to have a Bible, to be looking at it, to see what's around it. Test what I'm saying. Chapter 12, verse 10. This is the book of Genesis, God's Word. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Abram called Abram. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, "What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did she say she? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her as my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go." And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt. He and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let me pray. God, our Father, we come to you this morning at the end or the beginning of uh, the end of a very tumultuous and unprecedented week in our life for those of us who are Americans. We saw what we did not think we would ever see, bloodshed in the halls of our own capital. The trust in our institutions and frankly in one another is at a low ebb. In all this amidst a pandemic where we are isolated and on edge. We have grief, anger, confusion, sadness. We've gathered together, God, in this building or through the internet, somewhat out of habit. But I like to thank God mostly in some sort of hope. Hope that what we are doing here in worship matters And that what we're doing here can and will renew us. So we pray, God our Father, meet us now in the story of Abram. In his story of exile and famine. In his story of failure and faith. Help us to find resources and more hope. 
Help us to understand that like Abram lived in the New Testament says, we are strangers and exiles, aliens. This world, even our beloved country, is not our own. We belong to you and your heavenly kingdom. Meet us, God, in the preaching, the praying, the singing, and the eating of the Lord's Supper. For Christ's sake, amen. Well, as you are well aware, if you listen to me preach, I have a five-year-old son. And uh, both my wife and I were raised in families where we were downhill skiers, snow skiers. And so we have started to talk about teaching my son to ski, to downhill ski. Now, if you have been snow skiing, and maybe you remember when you first started snow skiing, it's kind of counterintuitive, right? You put these, like, poles on your feet, and then you lean downhill, and you start going. I mean, you start on a bunny slope. I have no idea why they call it a bunny slope. Uh, But you lean in over your skis. At least when I was starting to learn to ski, you had to make a wedge, which put a lot of pressure on your legs. And you were told to trust the edges, trust the edges and lean into them. And as you start to do it, at least when I remember this, you start to do it like, oh, I got this. I got this, and you're carving out your wedge back and forth. And then what happens? You lean too much, you get off balance, and you go nose over ski tips. You fall. You trust the edges too much, as it were. But here's the deal. To grow as a skier, to learn, you got to get back up, and you got to keep leaning in. And in fact, to grow as a skier, you have to fall. You have to fail. You have to fail to become a great skier. I would suggest the world's best skiers, Michaela Schifrin, uh, Schifrin Bodie Miller, I think he's retired, uh, Lindsey Vaughn, they've all fallen, but they keep leaning in. They keep leaning downhill, trusting the edges of their skis. Well, this time last year, we were looking at Genesis chapter 1, verse through chapter 11, and last week we started a sermon series on Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 25, the story of the life of Abraham. Now, I'm going to use Abram and Abraham. He's called Abram here early. I'll probably slip up and call him Abraham at some point because that's what we know him by. But Abram, his name is eventually changed to Abraham, the story of Abraham. He's kind of a hero. I mean, if you were to turn to the New Testament, this is what the book of Hebrews has to say about Abram, our character this morning. This is just such a great description of someone, right? By faith, Abram, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And Abraham went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, Abram went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land, and he lived in tents, heir of the promise. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. I mean, there's this great picture of Abraham, the man of faith, this great man of of faith. I mean, wow, Abraham, he left. He didn't even know the name of the country he was going to, but he went. But what's the real story of Abraham? What's the story behind the story? What I want to do this morning is a little bit like the Real Housewives version of Abraham versus the Hallmark version of Abraham, which is a little bit what Hebrews is, no disrespect intended. Because as we'll see this morning, this grand picture of Abraham, the man of faith, is a little bit messier than what we might first believe. And this is one of the things I love about Christianity and I love about the Bible. It does not hide people's flaws. The heroes of the faith are flawed, failed people who have great failures of faith like we see in Abraham this morning. Because I want to suggest that Abraham's story and the life of faith generally is a lot like downhill skiing. The more you lean in, the more you trust, the greater the skill of your faith. You actually will fail. You will fall. But the great hope is that we fall forward into the arms of our Savior. Like Abram, you will fall. You will fail, as will I. 
But the key here is that God is faithful. He picks Abram up and, as it were, puts him back on his skis. So I want to see four things this morning. I want to see the test of faith, the failure of faith, the redeemer of faith, and the repentance of faith. But first, the test of faith. Now, just for a moment, put yourself in Abram's shoes. This guy's a lot more like us than we realize. I mean, he kind of is a semi-affluent guy living a pretty comfortable life. Put yourself in his shoes and imagine the challenge to faith he faith that he faces in today's verses. God has come to you in the verses we looked at last week. In chapter 12, verse 1, he said, Abram, I want you to go. Leave your land, leave your wealth, leave your father's house, leave your country, leave the language you know, leave everything, leave this great place of prosperity, Ur of the Chaldees and and, and Haran. Leave, trust me, and move to a new place. You believe God and you do it. You leave your homeland with all those comforts. You leave all those things behind. And you follow God. And then when you arrive... You start to move around this land. He's actually moving from north to south. This is the, uh, chapter 12 that uh, Nick looked at last week. Sacrificing to God at different altars. You start in the north in Shechem. This is verse 7. He, he built an altar at Shechem. And then he moves a little further to the south at Ai. Verse 8, he built an altar at Ai. And now he moves into the, into the Negev in, in verse 9. I mean, if you picture even Israel on a modern map, a modern geopolitical map, he's basically moving from north to south and he's building altars as he's going. He's claiming land for God. In my family, we've been watching uh, Little House on the Prairie, the old TV show from the 70s. And all stories about the American West, all stories about the American West are asking the question, whose land is it? That's all the stories. Of the Amer- whose land is it? Is it the Native Americans? Is it the government? Or is it the settlers? And when Paul, one of the great characters in American uh, 20th century uh, TV history, when Paul moves into the territory, what does he do? He marks his land. And Abram, boldly, before owning a square foot of land, is setting up altars as he goes. He's marking the land for God, saying, this is God's land. No wonder the Canaanites will come to hate him. So despite this moving to follow God, despite the fact that he's marking the land, putting him at odds with his neighbors, he's following, he's obeying God. He's done all this for God, right? Then, verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. And it goes on to say, in the second half of the verse, it was a severe famine. As one of my favorite preachers, Ralph Davis, says, the land of promise is a land with problems. It's a land that is not flowing with milk and honey. I mean, can you imagine being Abraham? I mean, God, I can't believe this, God. I moved here for you. I marked this land for you. I put myself at risk. And this land, it can't even support us. Are you serious? Ian Duguid asked a great question. Have you ever started out on something convinced it is God's will? But rather quickly, the whole thing seems to start falling apart. And you wonder either, did God really call me to this? Is this real? Or maybe you ask, why is God allowing this to happen? Maybe even more severe, why is God doing this to me? The temptation is either to despair, to throw in the towel... Or tempted to forget about God, to take control. You know what? If you can't do it, God, if you can't take care of me, I'll take care of myself. Which is exactly, we'll see in a moment, what Abram starts to do. But let me say something that's maybe controversial. But in love, God has allowed this famine to happen to Abram that he might know more of God's love. In love, God has allowed the famine so that Abram might know God's love. You see, God demands that he be trusted. God demands to be number one. He demands that we love him above all things because he knows that is what is best for us. 
He knows that is what is best. He knows that he is the best. And that if we put anything ahead of him, that is not good for us. We need him to be number one. He needs us. He wants us to trust him. Now, this happens hundreds of times if you are a parent. From going to bed to trying to get your children to try new food, you say, trust me, it's good. It, trust me, you've got to learn to trust me. I mean, even take the illustration I'm using of skiing. You take your kid to the top of the hill for the first time and you say, trust me, if you'll do this, this will be good. You'll have a lifelong hobby. You'll enjoy this. And God is allowing this famine, this trial, this test, because he loves Abram. And he wants Abram to learn to trust him. John Calvin, 16th century reformer, has a great, this is just beautiful. He says this, John Calvin does. It is not to be supposed that God takes a cruel pleasure in the trouble of his servants. But God tries all their affections that he may not leave any lurking places undiscovered in their hearts. God determined thoroughly to rouse all the senses of Abram. End quote. What is God doing? God has tested his love of country. He's tested his love of comfort, his love of his family, his love of his birthplace, the love of domestic abundance. He's tested all those things. And now with this famine, he is testing Abram's love of security. He's testing his love of God. He's testing whether he will trust God. So let me ask, what is the famine in your life where God is asking you to trust him above all things? I mean, there's a lot of things on the national scene. We have a pandemic right now, right? Uh, there's a famine of public trust in our world today. But what about personally, personal famines? Maybe it's a tough marriage. Maybe it's an employment situation, a lack of employment. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's rebellious children or someone, chronic pain. What is the famine in your life? Seven years ago, my wife and I, newly married, moved here from Los Angeles, convinced that it was God's will, convinced it was God's will. And things were going great. They really were. Two and a half years ago, we said goodbye, though, to a beloved pastor, Jason Little, and his family. A year later, which is a year and a half from ago, there was still no replacement found for Jason. And there was a Sunday in June of 2019, there's a Sunday in June of 2019, where on one Sunday we had a going away party. Those of us in leadership, we kind of put a smile on our faces, but our hearts weren't really smiling. Where on one Sunday we said goodbye to two elders and five staff people. We laid hands on them. We sent them out to do amazing things, to start an RUF chapter in Florida, I mean in California, uh, to lead a national nonprofit, to start a major uh, program at a, at a major university. But the elders who were left, and I, there wasn't hardly any staff, uh, the elders who were left and I, we put on a smile, but it was hard. I never even told the elders this at the time, but I came home one night and I told Allison, I don't know that I can keep doing this. I don't know that I can keep doing this. People leaving. It was a famine of people. And I couldn't see where God was. And I couldn't see. My faith was flagging and faltering. It must have shown on my face because quite a few of you commented on it to me. Because I really was struggling to believe. But what is it for you today? Where is God testing you? Not because he wants to grade you or not because he wants to punish you. But because he wants your heart. What is the famine in your life? So first, the test of faith. Second, the failure of faith. Verse 11 and following. 
Because of this test, because of this famine, Abram does what God's people, including Jesus' parents, often did. He fled to Egypt. There's lots of overturns, uh, overtones, I should say, of the Exodus. He talks about being a sojourner. Uh, we have language of Pharaoh and famine and plagues, very much looking forward to the Exodus, uh, which will be several hundred years from 400 years later. Now, I don't think, uh, some commentators disagree on this, I don't think that Abram sinned in going to Egypt. But he was certainly tempted. Because even before he gets to Egypt, we see his faith falter. Let me give you the Marshall Brown version, the MB, MBV of verses 2, uh, 11 to 13. This is my, my rendition of verses 11 to 13. Uh, hey, babe, uh, before we get to Egypt, uh, I know how men are. I especially know how powerful men are. And you are really beautiful. And so for my sake, when we get there, can you just, can you just tell everybody that you're my sister uh, because if you don't, they're going to kill me. And so, you know, can you do that, you know, for my sake? Right? That's what Abram does on the cusp of going into Egypt. His faith fails. He sins. He lies. He asks his wife to lie. He puts her in a terrible, he, he forsakes his wife. He puts her in this terrible position. And perhaps above all, he fails to believe that God will deliver him. He fails to trust God. You see, Abram thinks he knows better than God and that if he can just take the wheel of his life, if he can just control things, it will be better. And let me be clear about this. If you look at verses 14, 15, and 16, he was right about his wife. She was beautiful. And Pharaoh noticed her and Pharaoh did take him into his house. He was right at least about that part. But he wanted to take control of his life. His fear of danger and his love of security drove him to be a person who did not trust and who lied. Fear of danger and love of security. I want to look first at the consequence, one of the consequences, and then the motivation. The consequence, this is, you've got to think about this, but every compromise, every sin jeopardizes other people. We like to think that we can sin, disobey God, and it not have consequences. But Abram's sin, his unbelief, landed his wife in an Egyptian harem on the verge of terror. That's what his sin did. You see, friends, our sin is, it may not be that drastic, but our sin is always in community. It is always in community. There's no such thing as a private sin. Sin always has victims. There's always collateral damage, consequences. But second, let's look at the motivation in this failure of faith. Ian Duguid again. At that moment, Abram loved his safety and security more than he loved God. He loved his safety and his security more than he loved God. Now, this was a man, a man who just a few verses before had displayed giant faith, world-moving faith. He had literally moved to a place he didn't know because, just because God had said so. And now he's living in fear and disbelief, which is to say that the famine exposed his heart. John Calvin again. If we desire to follow God with constancy... It behooves us carefully to meditate all the inconveniences, all the difficulties, all the dangers which await us. And I would add, it behooves us to meditate on the famines, the crises of our life. So if you've identified the famine in your life, how are you facing it? Are you trying to control? What is the temptation for you to do in a famine? What does it bring to the surface in your life? What fears, what lack of trust, what ultimate loves does it bring to your life? 
uh, someone forwarded an email to me uh, from Johnny Erickson Tata. If you know that name, Johnny Erickson Tata, 50 years ago, was in a diving accident, and she is a quadriplegic. She sits in a wheelchair. I don't know the latest, but as of a month ago, as a quadriplegic, she had contracted, despite all the precautions, she had contracted COVID. I don't know how she is today, actually. But I saw this email that she had sent out um, that said that she is trying to focus her prayer 20% on healing and that God would protect her life, but 80%, think about this, 80% of her prayer is about what God is doing in her life, in her heart. What is he exposing? Because she is a quadriplegic with COVID. That, friends, is great faith. That, friends, is 80%, not worried about healing, not pr- 80% focused on what is God showing me about my heart. She's in a wheelchair with COVID. What is God showing your heart and your family? I, let me just speak to the national scene for just a moment. What happened this week in our country was, it was so hard for everybody. I mean, even no matter where you are on the political spectrum, it's just sad. Some of you may know that I interned uh, years ago in the United States Senate, and I, I didn't, my office was not actually in the Capitol, but the Capitol was kind of my office building. It's, it's just looking at the place where I used to go to work. There's grief and sadness. But there's something else that I came to realize about my heart this week. Despite the fact that I intellectually knew this, I didn't realize how much trust I had put in America how much trust I had put in the institutions, in our prosperity, in our stability. I had put my trust in America, above God. I had forgot Abram's lesson of being in exile. And I'd look to my security, my prosperity, specifically for my son, specifically for him. And I had to repent, and I'm having to repent, of my trust in America. Our freedom, our stability, our prosperity, those are great things. They are great things. We're to, be, we're to be thankful for them. We're to even love them. But we've got to remember, America is not our home. And freedom, prosperity, they're not promised, not by God. They're not. This week I thought of some members of our church who live in other countries who have to keep their membership at our church because if they were to join a church in their home country, they would be sent to prison. And the promises are no less true for them as they are for us. Those are our, they're literally members of Grace Presbyterian Church because they have to be. Think about that. Because they have no freedom. They have no prosperity. They have no stability. And if they found out they worship Jesus, they might just end up in prison. God, God is our only hope. We are exiles. We are strangers. And God tests our hearts, even allows us to fail so that we might see our folly and love and trust and worship him rightly and fully. I want you to see something about Abraham's story here. It is God's grace that allows him to fail. It is God's grace. He is searching out the corners of Abraham's heart, wanting to find the places where he falls short, where he doesn't really trust. He wants to find those places in Abraham's heart so that Abraham can become the great man of faith that he becomes. And so whatever famine you're facing, and even the ways that you fail as you face that famine, God is wanting to search out the corners of your heart that you might trust him in that place where you're not trusting him now. God is so gracious, even in our failures of faith. You see, it's not about us. It's about him. Which brings me, we've seen the test of faith and the failure of faith. Let's look at, gloriously, the Redeemer of faith. Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh. 
and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Abram may have forgotten God. Abram may have not trusted God, not loved God, but God has not forgotten Abram. He has not forgotten the promise. And he sends plagues on the house of Pharaoh so that Sarah might be delivered and Abram might be set free. And it just, it's like, just like this overboard of grace because Abram even leaves with more wealth than when he came. He's allowed to take everything he had and everything he had acquired. And isn't it just like God to take our failure to bless us? Take our failure to bless us. I told you about that night of despair when I came home and told my wife, I don't know if I can keep doing this. We know a year and a half ago, June of 2019, when we had that service sending those, uh, those people out, those two elders, those five staff, you know who was visiting in the service that day? Nick Swan. <laughs> Nick Swan was here that day. You know who was making a way up from Miami driving a moving truck? Diana Williams. Allie Brent was planning to move here. I couldn't see around the corner, but God could. In the night of my despair, he was being faithful and building something. It was so good. But make sure you don't miss this. God's deliverance is not about Abram. It is not about delay. It's certainly not just about Abram. Because God is not just protecting Abram. He's protecting Abram's offspring. Because Abram does go back to Canaan, as we'll see. And he'll eventually father a son named Isaac, and Isaac will father a son named Jacob, and Jacob will father the twelve tribes, and down through them will come David and Solomon, and through them Joseph and Mary, of whom was born Jesus. And there's a lot of similarities between Jesus and Abram. Jesus, like Abram, left his home and family. Abram left his home and family. Jesus left his father's side in heaven, became an exile to this earth. Abram left on the basis of a promise. God said, I'll be with you. So did Jesus. Jesus, the God the Father, said, I will make the nations your inheritance. And so Jesus went. Like Abram, Jesus passed through Egypt. But the similarities stopped there. Because Jesus was faithful. He was always an honest person, even to his own harm, even to his own death. Jesus didn't avoid the plague like Abram. Jesus experienced the plague. The afflictions that came upon Pharaoh's house came upon Jesus. And whereas Abram sold out his wife in an attempt to save his own skin, Jesus gave himself for the friends who betrayed him, denied him, and deserted him. Jesus died for people, you and me, who forsake him. You see, Jesus was the faithful one. He is the faithful one. And so for those who trust him, when the Father looks at us, when the Father looks at Abram, he doesn't see us. He sees the faithfulness of Jesus, his perfect record. He doesn't see your failures, your private sins, the ways that you're not faithful. What does he see with the Father when he looks at you? He sees Jesus. He sees Jesus, the faithful one. And I believe that Abram, in some foggy sense of faith, started to understand this. He's like, oh, this isn't about me. God's got a hold of me. And that led him to a repentance and return to the land of promise. So we've seen the test of faith, we've seen the failure of faith, the redeemer of faith. Let's finally look at the repentance of faith. I won't read again the first four verses of chapter 13. But Abram with his wife and with great wealth makes his way back. And he returns all the way to Bethel, which I told you earlier is where he built an altar. And in the last part of verse 4 he says, And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. One commentator says that verses 1 to 4 of chapter 13 are geography as an expression of hope. 
It's almost like Abram is going back to the places where he has failed and he is expressing his hope upon God. So what do we do with this story? What do we do as we walk out of here this morning? Well, I think there's at least three responses uh, that this story prompts at least in me. The first is failure. I mean, excuse me, not failure. Failure is what's coming. Uh, Is humility because we are failures. Humility because we are failures. I have a mentor who likes to say, Marshall, cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. Uh, We do fail. All of us, we fail. And that gives us a humility, knowing there's no such thing, no such thing as a faithful Christian. There's only a faithful God. And because of that, that brings the second thing. It's not just humility, but it's also hope. You know, back in those dark nights two years ago when I couldn't see around the corner, God could see around the corner. And behind, as the hymn says, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. We can hope. Whatever the famine is that you're passing through, God sees around the corner and he knows what is good and wants to give it to you. But then finally, we can learn to trust. There's humility, there's hope, but we can learn to trust because my experience, like Abram's, I think, and I think this is all the people of the life of faith, the more you see God being faithful, it's not just that you read about it and intellectually know about it, but that you actually experience it. I'm 47 years old, and you know, I've never found God to fail me. I've always doubted him. You know, been, you know, didn't want to take that step, didn't want to lean over that hill, didn't want to lean into my skis. But you know what? At every corner, God meets me. I mean, I try to run away. I try to fail, and he still meets me. And you know what that does? Over the course of time, you start to trust a little bit more. You start to lean over the skis just a little bit more, knowing that you're going to fail, you're going to fall, and he's going to meet you in the midst of your failure because he is a God of truth, He is a God of hope. He's a God of love. And he has all those things for us. Let me pray. Our great God, we thank you for the story of Abram, this man who with fits and starts and great acts of faith and terrible acts of faithfulness learned to trust you. Would you give us the grace to follow in his footsteps? For Christ's sake, amen.